You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. On September 25th, 2020, a man named Nathan Apodaca got into his 2005 Dodge Durango and he turned the keys because he had to go to work at the potato factory where he worked in Idaho Falls. He turned the keys and the car was dead. But instead of panicking and instead of calling a friend to give him a ride, he actually grabbed his trusty longboard and a jug of Cran Raspberry Ocean Spray juice. And he set off on his way to work. And on the way, he filmed the following video. And that video is pretty silly. It's just a video of Nathan, or as he goes by with his username, at Dogface208, cruising on the downhill ride to the potato factory, and he's chugging cran raspberry juice, and he's lip-syncing to the song Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. It's, as the kids say these days, a whole vibe. Now, that video, while it might seem silly, over the next two weeks, would be viewed on TikTok over 35 million times, getting 6.3 million likes. It went viral, and it attracted the attention of all sorts of celebrities and news stations. Ocean Spray uh, actually tracked down Nathan and bought him a brand new truck. Uh, Even the drummer for Fleetwood Mac created a social media account so that he could recreate that video. And uh, overnight, he became popular. He became social media famous. And now he has millions of followers, and he's able to to monetize and make money off of social media. He has his own agent, and he's even taken a break from the potato factory. Now, why do I share that story with you? The reason I share that with you is today we're wrestling with this question, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? Remembered, And one viral moment in Nathan Apodaca's life will, will put him down in history as the cranberry juice longboard guy. And for so many people, maybe that's the dream for them, especially younger people where, uh, that grew up in the digital age where likes and comments are kind of a form of currency, where, where maybe for you, you want to be remembered as being popular. You want to be remembered as having a ton of followers, or maybe you want to be remembered as being successful, being rich, being beautiful, being handsome. Maybe for you, you want to be remembered as being a good friend, as being a good spouse, as being a loving father or mother, or maybe you want to be remembered as a faithful follower of Jesus. The reality is one viral moment can gain you popularity, but it takes a lifetime to create a legacy. See, all it takes is one viral moment where you might be doing the most random thing, longboarding, drinking cran raspberry juice, to make you famous or to gain you popularity. But if you want to create a legacy, that doesn't happen overnight. Overnight, you could become the next you know, cranberry juice longboard guy or girl, but, but not overnight. You can't overnight become a great spouse or a good friend or a faithful follower of Jesus. Creating a legacy is the slow, quiet, consistent work of how we live our do- lives every single day. And in some ways... It takes more work than even blowing up on social media and becoming 
popular, that, that creating a legacy is something that we build one day at a time. Now, for King David, we're continuing our Prophets and Kings series. David and Goliath, who we talked about last week, David and Goliath, that was his viral moment. After David, this little shepherd boy, beat Goliath, he went viral. He became incredibly popular. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 18, verses 7 through 9. And the women sing to one another. So this is like, you know, the social media of the day. It's what the women are saying about you. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So King Saul, the reigning king in Israel, is jealous He's jealous of this viral moment, this popularity that David seems to have gained. And for us, uh, that was a very memorable story. I mean, most people could tell you at least the general idea of the story of David and Goliath. But the reason we still talk about David today and his lasting impact actually spans beyond this one moment of popularity, King David left a legacy. In fact, the the great legacy that King David left, we we learn about before we even meet the character of David in Scripture. Way back in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, in uh, Samuel's pronouncement of judgment upon King Saul, this is what he says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's really the legacy that David left with his life. There's much to be said about King David being great, a godly leader, a, you know, a great leader of people. And there's also some bad things to be said about David. We're going to look at one of David's greatest sins today as well. David had an eye for women, and he accumulated many wives for himself. So there are things that David did that weren't good. David was not perfect by any means. Uh, but there are also many great things that David did. We could talk about how David was courageous. He worshiped God with passion. He was generous. He had a keen sense of justice. He was a good shepherd, right? That's a good leadership skill, being a shepherd. All of those sorts of things. But today, really, what we're going to look at is what made David a man after God's own heart. And how can you and how can I learn to live our lives every single day, one day at a time, building a legacy so that we, we would be known as a man or a woman, that we would be known as a church after God's own heart. And there are a number of different things that make David a man after God's own heart. But today, uh, we're covering over 25 chapters in the biblical story, so we don't have time to take a deep dive on any one thing. Uh, but what I want to do is I just want to highlight three. Three of the things that I think we see consistently throughout the life of David, three characteristics that make him a man after God's own heart. And as we look at each one of these three, we're going to see a practice for us and how we can be people after God's own heart as well. The first characteristic we see from David is David has mercy. When I say mercy, a good simple definition of mercy is unnecessary kindness. It's one thing to show kindness to someone who deserves it. It's one thing to show kindness to someone who has been kind to you. But mercy is when you show an unnecessary amount of kindness to someone who maybe they don't even deserve kindness. They deserve something 
else. And King Saul, David's predecessor, uh, is actually the opposite of each one of these three characteristics that make David a man after God's own heart. Maybe you remember King Saul was a king like all the other nations. And the legacy that he would be remembered by is he was tall, he was rich, he was handsome, but he wouldn't necessarily be known as being merciful. In fact, from that moment where David kills Goliath and Saul is jealous of David, Saul seeks to kill David for the rest of his life. There's this tragic uh, spiral downward for the rest of 1 Samuel to, to the untimely death at the hands of the Philistines at Mount Gilboa in chapter 31, where King Saul is consistently trying to kill David. He tries to use his daughter Michael, who she had married David, to, to, to help him kill him. She, he tries to use Jonathan, David's best friend. He even throws a spear himself at David and, and tries to pin him on the wall with a spear. King Saul hates David. And he doesn't just hate David, he even hates the people who helped David. There's this moment in, in 1 Samuel chapter 22 where there's these priests at Nob and they help David. They give him some bread to eat, and they even uh, hand him Goliath's sword, which was being kept there in the place of worship. And what happens is David escapes Saul's hands once again, and Saul shows up, and he finds out the priests at Nob helped David, and he has 85 of these priests executed just for helping David. So that's the opposite. That's, that's not unnecessary kindness. That's unnecessary evil unnecessary killing and violence that you consistently see from Saul. But from David, you see the opposite. There were numerous times throughout David's life where he actually had an opportunity to take the throne from Saul himself. One of those is in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David is hiding out with his mighty men. He has a group of about 600 warriors who are with him. It's not quite an entire army like King Saul had access to, but at least he has his group of fighting men, and they're hiding out in the wilderness of the Engedi. And they're there in the wilderness, and David is, is really, it's this moment where it seems like King Saul finds out he's there, and David is trapped in a cave. He's hiding out with his men in a cave, and it seems like Saul has them cornered. But in this moment of fortune, what happens is King Saul goes into the cave. He doesn't know exactly where David is. He just knows he's in the wilderness, but he happens to be at the very cave where David and his men are hiding, and King Saul goes into the cave to go to the bathroom. I'm not joking. You can read this in 1 Samuel 24. And, and, and this is this moment where it seems like Saul is being handed to David on a silver platter. And he's trying to kill him. So they are the classic definition of enemies. And David's own mighty men, they tell him, this is it. This is your moment. God is giving you the kingdom. Go ahead and go and kill King Saul. And so David goes and he sneaks over to King Saul. We don't know if King Saul is still using the restroom, still going to the bathroom or what. But he goes over and instead of killing him, he shows him mercy. He shows him unnecessary kindness, and he, he takes his sword, and he cuts off a little bit of King Saul's robe. And, and then Saul and, and his soldiers, they, they go to leave, and David comes out of the cave, and he calls to King Saul, and he waves the cloth, and he shows him, I could have killed you, but instead of killing you, I showed you mercy. This is Saul's response in 1 Samuel 24, 17. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you 
evil. Maybe there's someone in your life right now who you feel like they are mistreating you. They speak evil of you. They, they're, they're adding evil to your plate. And the reality is if we're going to be people after God's own heart, we're going to take the evil that they give to us and we're going to repay it for good. This is not the only time that David does this. David has numerous times throughout his life where he has the opportunity to repay evil for evil, but every single time he repays it for good with King Saul. That's an awesome, awesome example of mercy. Mercy in that sense is really the idea of forgiveness and letting things go and not taking justice into his own hands. Later in David's life, though, he has another opportunity, another striking opportunity, and this kind of shows the other use of that word mercy. Uh, It's actually with a man named Mephibosheth, which is just a great Bible name. In 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, this is what David said, and David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So this is after David is already the king. We're going to skip around a lot today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And he actually is looking for an opportunity to show mercy. He says, okay, so Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. They, they both die at the end of 1 Samuel. And uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David says, is there anyone left? Is there a descendant? Because I want to show what? I want to show kindness. I want to show an unnecessary kindness. I want to show mercy to someone. And he finds out, he talks to uh, a servant from the house of Saul, and he says there's a man named Mephibosheth. And what Mephibosheth uh, was wrong with him is when he was a baby, he was dropped his nurse was rushing and dropped him, and he's been crippled. He hasn't been able to walk a day in his life. And so he is in this moment where he actually needs mercy from someone. And when David meets him, Mephibosheth says, Who am I? I'm a dead dog. So that tells you a little bit of something about how Mephibosheth viewed himself, his identity, his own worth. And what David does is he essentially adopts Mephibosheth and, and, and he eats at his table and he acts like one of his sons until the day that he dies. And the thing is, that was totally unnecessary. David didn't have to go looking for people who needed mercy, but he did. And that's why David is a man after God's own heart. So here's the practice for us. Look for opportunities to give and forgive. To give and forgive. That's a really good way of thinking about mercy. On the one hand, mercy does mean to forgive someone who's wronged you, not to hold their sins against them. And the unnecessary kindness you show that person is forgiving them of their sins, of letting them off the hook. Look for opportunities in your life where you're holding bitterness and grudges and and, and forgive someone, unnecessarily even. And on the other side, it's to give. It's to show a kindness to someone, to actually look at someone who's maybe less fortunate, who's in need, especially in this season, and to give them something, to show them a tangible act of kindness. Maybe it's food, maybe it's a coffee, maybe it's just someone who's having a bad day, but look for those opportunities. Like David in, in 2 Samuel 9, it says, is there anyone that I can show kindness to? We should have that posture of that heart. After all, Jesus in the Beatitudes says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We serve a loving and a merciful God who has shown us great mercy. And so now in our lives, if we want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, we show that same kind of mercy to others. That's the first characteristic of David is mercy. The second characteristic that I see in King David's life is this word obedience. 
Obedience is knowing and doing God's will. On the one hand, we have to know God's will and discern what God wants for us. And on the other hand, we actually have to do it when we find out what God wants. Once again, King Saul is the opposite of this. He's anti-obedient. He's disobedient consistently throughout his life. That's what led to the kingdom being torn away from Saul was his chronic disobedience and rebellion. Samuel uttered that famous line, God desires obedience over sacrifice. Your religious activities don't overcome. They don't make up for the disobedience in your life. And yet David has this just consistent There's this line that said over and over that David inquired of the Lord. He's always, it's not too little too late, like Saul inquired of the Lord after the battle happened, right? Saul would ask what God wanted him to do after he already did what he wanted to do anyways. David inquires of the Lord time and time and time and time and time again. One great example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 23. What happens is David is still on the run from King Saul. So he's hiding out. He doesn't want his whereabouts to become known to the king. Otherwise, the king will show up with soldiers and try to kill him. And yet he finds out the city of Kila is under attack from the Philistines. And it's this moment in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, uh, where he says, should we go? And what happens is he inquires of the Lord, and he feels like that he's able uh, to go. And this is what it says. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kila and are robbing the threshing floor. So they're taking the grain, they're taking the, the stuff. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord and said, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And you want to know what God says? God says, yes, go, save the city. I know you're putting your neck out. I know you're putting yourself in danger. And in fact, the soldiers, the mighty men say, no, we can't go. We're not, we shouldn't do this, right? And David says, I've already inquired of the Lord. So David, just to be certain, inquires of the Lord again. And God says, yes, go. And so they go. And sure enough, they save the city. They win the victory, but Saul hears about David's whereabouts, and he sends his soldiers, and they're on the way. And in this moment, it's, it seems unlikely. Well, now, now what's going to happen? God's going to let us fall into the hands of our enemy. But once again, God saves them. He provides a way out, and the people, David and his mighty men, escape. And it's that moment where when we follow God's will for our lives, sometimes it's going to cause us to to take a step of faith where there's a risk, where there's cost involved. Sometimes it's not going to make sense to us. The numbers aren't going to add up. And yet God provides a way out. He provides a way forward in that moment. Another example that I love from the life of David when it comes to obedience is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a temple for God. So God gives David and the kingdom of Israel a season of rest where there's no battles, where there's no wars, and it's just a good season to be in. And David has the palace that he lives in, in Jerusalem. And so he asks uh, Nathan the prophet to speak to God for him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it says this, I will dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And the tent that he's referring to is the tabernacle, which by this point in time is very, very old, probably tattered, probably could use for some upgrades, right? A little bit of a remodel or renovation on the tabernacle. And David says, I live in this beautiful house of cedar, 
let me build a house for God. And at first, Nathan the prophet, who's kind of our prophet for today, uh, Nathan the prophet says, yeah, sure. And to him, it sounds good. I mean, what's, what's wrong with that idea? Building a temple, building a place of worship for God. But then Nathan, that night, as he goes to bed, he hears a word from the Lord. And God actually tells him, no, to stop David. Uh, God, and so Nathan goes back and he says, okay, I told you yes, but what I actually meant was no. God does not want you to build a temple. In fact, he's appointed that task for your son. That will be one of his major contributions to his kingship is to be the one to build the temple. And then what happens is in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, there's this interesting prophecy about the future. It says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What God is saying through the prophet Nathan to David is, is not only don't build a temple, your son is going to do it. He makes this promise to him. He says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to establish your house forever. And so David is, is probably scratching his head. What in the world does that mean? What this teaches us is that God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than our ways and they're higher than our thoughts. And, and what God meant when he said he would establish David's name and his house forever is he's talking about Jesus He's talking about the one who would actually establish the kingdom of heaven on earth forever. Just look at the very first verse of chapter 1 of the New Testament. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And that's what God is thinking about. So David is thinking about literally his own lifetime, what he can do with his own resources for right now. And God, his thoughts and his ways, he's thinking way out. Jesus is going to be a descendant of David. And that is ultimately the one who established the kingdom of heaven forever. And so even though David had a good plan, it wasn't God's plan. So God tells him no. And so for us, how we can embody obedience is we need to seek to know and will, uh, know and do the will of God. And the way we do that, here's a simple practice for you, is just ask God the question, what do you want me to do? Ask God, what do you want me to do? And not just at one moment in time, not even just at that, that major crossroads where maybe you graduated high school. God, what do you want me to do? You graduated college. What do you want me to do? You're about to get married. What do you want me to do? We tend to pray and ask God's guidance in, the, in those big crossroads moments. But I wonder what would happen every single day if on your way to work or before you even left your house, you had a quiet time and in your prayer, there was just this heart posture of, God, what do you want me to do today? Give me eyes to see the, the, the people you want me to love. Give me eyes to see the people you want me to help, how I can share the good news of the gospel with my words or with my actions. God, what do you want me to do today? And I'm not saying that maybe every single day there's this master plan and, oh, I had the wrong thing for lunch today. I'm off track or anything like that. What I'm saying is there's this posture of obedience where we seek to desire and, and to know what God's will is and do God's will, that's ultimately what walking by the Holy Spirit is. It's just being open and, and living each day in partnership with the Holy Spirit of God who actually walks with you every single day. So would you begin to ask consistently, God, what do you want me to do today? That's the second characteristic is David. David is merciful. He's obedient. And then the third characteristic is David has a heart of repentance. 
Repentance is what you do when you've disobeyed. So repentance is turning back to God. And this is one of the most famous stories about King David, where he has this tremendous, really kind of slow, long rise to power. He waits a long time to become king. He becomes king of just Judah for a little bit, and then ultimately all of Israel. And then he has this tragic Fall, this tragic downfall. We'll pick up uh, the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this is a really interesting, uh, interesting introduction to the story. Where it's it's the time where everyone's going to war. David is the king, the one who's supposed to be leading the army, leading the people, the one who's going to fight for the people. And he sends Joab, the commander of his army, but he himself does not go. He says he remained at home. He stayed at home. So he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And what happens is while he's there, so so he, he hasn't sinned necessarily yet. He's just not exactly where he's supposed to be. Then he catches, while he's on his his terrace one day, he catches eyesight of a woman taking a bath on her rooftop, and her name is literally Bathsheba, and that's only kind of a joke in English where bath and Bathsheba, right? So so that's an unintended just coincidence of the text in English that her name is Bathsheba, but she's taking a bath, and she's very, very beautiful, and in that moment... That was an accident, right? He saw her. He still hasn't sinned yet, but he stays and he stares at her. And he looks at her. And then this is what it says in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 11. And David sent and inquired about the woman. So notice what David used to be known for. Is he used to be known for going out to battle, being a godly leader. He used to be known for inquiring of the Lord. But now who is he inquiring about? He's inquiring about a naked woman that he saw. And he finds out that this woman, her name is is Bathsheba, and she is married to one of his best officers in his army, Uriah. And after he finds out who she is, he actually sleeps with her, and he commits adultery while Uriah, her husband, is doing the noble thing he should be doing. He's out on the battlefield fighting the Ammonites. He's fighting the battle that David should be fighting himself. And then he gets word later on that, that Bathsheba is pregnant. And so at first David was like, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want, there's no consequences for me, and now here's a very real consequence of his action. She's pregnant, and so he's trying to think of how do I, instead of come clean about this, how do I cover it up? And he calls for Uriah to be sent home from the battlefield. And he tries to get Uriah to, to sleep with his wife so that he would, you know, he wouldn't know that the baby actually belongs to King David. But Uriah is such a noble soldier and he's so loyal. He sleeps actually at the, at the entrance of the king's house where all the servants of the palace sleep. And then David even tries to get him drunk. And maybe if I get him drunk, maybe then he'll go home. But even when Uriah has had much to drink, he is still noble, he is still loyal, and he won't do it. And so the, David sends him back to the battlefield, but he sends a message with him to Joab, the commander of the army, that that Joab is going to have Uriah go to the very front lines, and then he's going to pull back the rest of the troops. And what happens is David is essentially issuing a death sentence. And sure enough, his evil plan works. Uriah goes, he's fighting at the front lines, and then Joab gives, gives the 
order, and all the soldiers, in fact, some of the soldiers don't even get the message as well. So there's, there's now casualties that are caught in the crossfire, but sure enough, Uriah dies, and word comes back, and Bathsheba is absolutely devastated. And for us, what can happen is, you know, we think about our sins, and, and let's just say the, these are matches, okay? These are some strike anywhere matches, what we tend to think about is our sins are, are just up to us. Like, it's just me, right? My sin only really has consequences for me. And what we don't always realize is, is that sin is actually damaging people around us. There is no such thing as an innocent sin or a sin that you can just manage. And so there's multiple players. There's David, there's Bathsheba. Now you have Uriah, and then you also have the baby, and you also have the different people in the army, the casualties in the army. So David might have thought, oh, my sin is just hurting me. But then pretty soon Bathsheba is caught in that sin as well. And then all of a sudden it's Uriah. And then all of a sudden, it's the baby. And all of a sudden, it's the other members of the army. And pretty soon what happens is sin burns like a wildfire. And it doesn't stop. I'm going to go ahead and put these out before I uh, cause a fire down here. But what happens is we like to think, you know, it's just that one match. It's just that one spark. And maybe the temptation is the spark of that sin. But what happens is sin gets out of control like a raging fire. And it damages and destroys anyone in its wake. There's this terrible series of events where this isn't just, you know, David committing adultery. All of a sudden, he's getting Uriah drunk. He's lying. He's killing. The soldiers who are, who are there in the front lines also die. And the baby eventually dies as well. And what happens is God has to send Nathan the prophet once again to even show David that what he did was sin. So God sends Nathan the prophet, and he goes to David, and he tells him this, this story, which, as we know, is just a story, but David thinks it's real. The story goes like this. There are two men, each who own sheep. One is a wealthy man, and he owns hundreds of sheep, and one is a very poor man, and he owns just one sheep. Now, we know that David has a soft spot for sheep because he used to be a shepherd boy. And the story goes like this. A visitor came and visited the rich man, and he wanted a meal. Instead of slaughtering and killing one of his sheep, what the rich man did is he goes and he steals the poor man's one sheep that he has, kills it, and feeds it to his visitor. And I want to read to you David's response to this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Or we could say he had no mercy, right? David knows the character of this, this man is so evil. And then Nathan says this famous line in verse 7, and Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. And David, he, he realizes all at once, we are so much better at judging others than we are at examining ourselves and our own sinfulness. And he was becoming furious. He was becoming angry at this made-up, you know, imaginary story, a man who steals a sheep. He stole someone's wife, and he didn't just kill a sheep. He killed a human. He killed multiple humans for the sake of trying to cover up his lies. And David was so angry about the sheep, and he wasn't angry at all about his own sinfulness, blatant sin in the eyes 
of God. So here's the practice for us, because we can be, we can be just as guilty as David. Maybe we would say, oh, I haven't done you know, as bad of things as we see in this story. But the reality is we ourselves are guilty of judging others and not examining ourselves. So here's the practice. Let your sin bother you. Let your sin bother you. We need, to be, we need to be just as angry about the sins in our lives as the evil and the sins that we see out there in the world. We need to be just as heartbroken about the sins in our lives because the reality is that the sins in our lives, we might think it's just one match, but it's actually lighting fires and creating damage and destruction everywhere, and it's leaving our own souls burned and calloused. Even if you're saved, your sin still destroys. It still wreaks destruction and havoc wherever it goes. And in this moment, David has an option. He could do what King Saul used to do, which is to shift the blame, to blame someone else, to act like he didn't do anything wrong. But look at what it says David does in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. No pretense. No, no shifting the blame. He just says, I did it. I'm guilty. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, also has put away your sin and you shall not die. So David's confession, David's, we can say, immediate repentance when he's confronted about his wrongdoing, God forgives him in that moment. Now, God's forgiveness doesn't always mean there's no consequences, because there are consequences that the baby would eventually die, and Nathan the prophet even pronounces judgment that the sword shall never leave David's house. And the rest of David's kingship is kind of this sad story of this internal conflict and turmoil within his own household. And he does grow old, and he, you know, he lives this long life and reigns and is king, but he kind of dies as a sad old Man having to, to put out all these battles with his children. But the reality is God genuinely forgives him in that moment. There are still consequences, but God forgives. And what this shows us is David's not a man after God's own heart because he was always perfect, far from it. But he's a man after God's own heart because even when he was imperfect, even when he sinned, he trusted God. He gave his life to God. He humbled himself before the Lord, and the Lord is the one who actually shaped and molded his heart. So here's our answer to the question. How do we have, how, how do we become a man or a woman after God's own heart? Trust God with your life, and he will give you his heart. We trust God with our lives. We trust God with our lives. We put our faith in Jesus, and what happens is God will give you his heart. We don't, we don't receive God's heart by, by earning it, by just trying to, you know, self-help. It's, it's not just something that we can try to do, but we need to receive a new heart from God. And today can be the day that for the very first time you can do that. You can be forgiven today, regardless of what you've done, no matter how bad you think your sins are. The reality is that Jesus is not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. He didn't just descend from, from the lineage of King David. He actually descended from heaven to earth. And he's the son of God who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven. He was obedient to the point of death, just like David was obedient, but, but Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You think David was merciful. Jesus is merciful, and he's the good shepherd, and he cares about you, and he wants to forgive your sins, and he wants to lead your life. So today can be the day that you trust God with your life, and God gives you his heart. 
God makes, you, God, God makes you a man or a woman after his heart and sends his Holy Spirit to sanctify you and shape you and cultivate a life that looks like Jesus. So today I would challenge you to respond to the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for your uh, sins on the cross and he rose back to life in victory. You can experience a resurrection in your life today. You can pray, you can ask God to forgive your sin and lead your life. And I would challenge you to take the step that Jesus instructed us to take for putting our faith in him. That's the step of baptism. You can find out more about baptism uh, by hitting a link in the description below, or you can go to hillcityboise.org baptism. And we would love to celebrate with you and walk alongside you as you put your faith in Jesus. But for you, maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already trusted your life to God. I would say to you, that's not just a one-time decision. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but there are still areas of your life where, where you look at yourself and you're like, I'm not a man after God's own heart in these areas. Or I'm not a woman after God's own heart in these areas. Or for us as a church, we're not quite a church after God's own heart in these areas. For us, if we want to be a church after God's own heart, we need to seek God each day. We need to be willing, not just to be angry at the sin in the world, but we need to examine our own hearts and ask God to give us a heart like his. I want to end just by reading a few lines out of Psalm 51, which is a prayer of repentance that David prayed after the events that happened with Bathsheba. And we can just be encouraged knowing if God can reconcile David and Bathsheba, and if God, if God can restore David and forgive David, then God can do a redemptive work in us and in our lives as well. And let's just, let's just listen with open hearts to these lines from Psalm 51, starting in the first two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me. For my sin. Maybe that can be a prayer for you today. Then in verses 10 through 12, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I don't know if you remember, but, but God actually withdrew his spirit from Saul. And so when David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, he's asking God not to punish him like God punished Saul and to forgive him and to give us that heart. That, that clean heart before God is not something that we scrub clean. It's something that God gives to us. And then in verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.